today on CityCast Denver. I've been hearing about the Denver area housing market cooling off, but I didn't think it could really happen. Then last week, I saw something wild. A house in my neighborhood sold for $15,000 under its asking price. Still, I know a lot of people are struggling to find an affordable, attainable home to own, so I reached out to someone who's been on this journey for a while. So we go to school for like, you know, at minimum 12 years. And then if you get like, you know, higher education, that's 16 for a bachelor's degree. To get a good job to do what? Right. To, to, to get a house. We should just spend 16 years learning how to build a house and then live peacefully until then. Like, what are we doing? My guest today is journalist, community activist, and friend of the show, Theo Wilson. And guess what? He's buying a house. Theo explains it all, how he got here, what it takes to find a home for his growing family, and what this housing market means for many Black families in America who have been locked out of generational wealth. Today is Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Theo Wilson, welcome back to CityCast Denver. Thank you very much for having me back. So Theo, you're doing something that I think a lot of folks want to do, but it's kind of scary. In Denver right now, you're looking at buying a house. Yes, I'm looking at buying a house. (laughs) Why? Why now? Honestly, because our family is growing and the apartment that we live in, we're not going to be able to have the lifestyle we need with two small children who need space in the space that we have. So we actually have to expand. Yeah, I I think that's a really common thing for folks. You're outgrowing the space you're living in and your family needs more space. Period. Um, Where are you looking? We're looking in Aurora, actually. And because Aurora's housing prices are a little bit better than Denver's housing prices. And we're kind of looking out in like far eastern Aurora, which some folks call Saudi Aurora, like way out there. And so, you know, like when you can still see wheat and grass and, you know, like perhaps a pronghorn antelope, that's where we're looking. So, yeah. What what are you seeing when you're out in the housing market? Like what are what are you looking at in terms of like styles of housing price? Like what are you what are you actually seeing in the neighborhoods you're looking at? You know, what I'm seeing has a lot to do with what I've been approved for. You see Mm. what I'm saying? Um, Mm -hmm. And that was. I hate to say, but a matter of happenstance, I happened to find a program that focused on getting, should we say, real estate equity to African-Americans specifically, the Deerfield grant. And I mean, there's a small grant portion, but it's through First Bank. And had I not found that, we'd be living in in a totally different world. And that world is the world that most of us live in. You know what I mean? And we got to really talk about how the housing market, even though it's cooling off, is still mostly inaccessible to most people, especially millennials like myself. Well, and you touched on something that I think is at the crux of a lot of folks' experience, which is mm-hmm. um, your, really, your work is identified with Denver, mm-hmm. but that becomes harder and harder as you look at needing, for instance, a bigger house, right? Yeah. The bigger we need, the farther out we tend to have to go. Absolutely. And I just wonder what what has your search in this experience of looking for a house taught you about Denver real estate? Well, I mean, you know, the American dream is working too well in, in, in a certain mm. res- respect. When you have 
the idea that the economy will forever expand, that home prices will forever go up. And if they don't go up, that means that something's wrong. And so they kept going up even faster than wages could keep pace. What you're looking at is the entire millennials and uh, mainly the middle class being a victim of its own success, especially for first time home buyers. And uh, with Denver having been such a hot market since we legalized marijuana, we grew faster than Mm. we were able to have safety nets in place in order to survive. So Mm. that was a municipal failure on many uh, legislators, but also we're still paying the price for it. And there's some stopgap measures that are trying to be put in place right now for some very, I feel, grounded people uh, in government, but they are very, very late. And that's the sad part. And we're trying to catch up. Yeah, I feel you. I feel you. I feel like we saw this coming. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as the everyday person who's not a legislator. Right. What what were we able to do, you know? Right. Other than watch it happen to our city. Super sad. But I know that a couple of weeks ago, Mayor Hancock talked up a new program in his State of the City address that would provide down payment assistance to black and brown um, folks in particular looking to buy a home. What do you think about that? Well... Down payment and how much it means to the overall price of the home Mm. is something that directly affects Black people due to generational wealth gaps and the intentional dispossession of Black wealth uh, via the hands of corrupt real estate agencies operating under the auspices of white supremacy for the last however long, right? I think about this all the time. Like My grandfather was a Tuskegee Airman, and a lot of the Black men who came back from World War II were not allowed into the very same home ownership programs that uh, their white counterparts who were veterans were allowed into. And I always wonder what would have happened had my grandfather been able to purchase a house somewhere in New York where my family is from and how much that would have appreciated now, how much that would have meant for my total asset wealth, how much that would have meant for even my father, right? There's real estate agents that don't realize that not everybody's dad has $50,000 to just fork you over. Absolutely. Right. And that's white and black people, but especially black people. No. And what you're describing is I'm on the I'm on that end of it. Mm. I'm on the end of the white uh, grandfather came home from World War II, was Mm. able to buy a house Mm. and set my family up. And I totally. Yes, that's exactly what happened. And it creates this thing for generations where. It's just totally inaccessible. I don't. I, I do wonder though. Sometimes with these these like city programs, is this going to make a dent in that bigger issue of? Nah. And and herein lies one of the greater issues uh, with should we say corporate capitalism as is practiced today. You know, if you start criticizing capitalism, people are quick to call you a socialist. But I I, I like to view myself as a Rooseveltian capitalist. A Rooseveltian capitalist simply says, let's create capitalist structures that are socially responsible that can create safety nets for working class people when bad luck does occur to, you know, regular folks. But specifically, the way that capitalism is practiced right now in the country, these programs that are even targeted for black and brown folks are not actually going to have the impact that they really should have because they're coming from banks. And since they're coming from banks, they operate within the banking model and the bank's job is to make money. So like, for example, um, the, the one we're in right now, that's an equity sharing program. Now, luckily, the equity share doesn't feel too bad to us, right? If the house appreciates $100,000, this is a 5% equity share. So they get $5,000. 
out of that, we keep 95. So that feels good to us. A lot of people don't think equity sharing is good, but it's still a bank model. It's still something that is constructed from the paradigm of the kind of banking capitalism that now owns politics. So politicians can't really get the teeth to create real toothy equity like you speak of. So I'm glad that it's there. Is it enough? No, because not number one, not enough people know about it for it to make an impact. And the way that it's structured is still for the banking capitalist model. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board, because the wine community here is like surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone, and there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade, hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. Do you feel conflicted at all about buying into this whole system? home ownership and banks and lending and... I mean, listen, every which way you slice it, every which way you slice it, there is some kind of uh, compromise that feels a little too aggressive. You know, I don't know what language I'm permitted, but the whole you're screwed either way feeling is... Yeah. If you read a mortgage contract, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And the fact is, is that we're in a space right now Economically, everybody is looking at inflation, right? What's yes. really happening, and, and this is starting to make the headlines now, is that corporations are using the inflation as a guise to price gouge collectively across the board, and there are no measures in place to stop it. There are, and and so that really hurts folks who have been historically disenfranchised in the first place. You, you know what I'm saying? And then those who are in the middle class, which is shrinking. So you know, a lot of, so the answer to that is housing assistance of some type. But the problem is that when you hear housing assistance, like most people think like you're talking about the projects. And then when you talk yeah. about the project, people are like, not in my backyard. I don't want another riffraff, you know, even though I totally care, but I just don't want to care that close to the problem. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? And so mm-hmm. there are legislators like uh, our friend Juan Marcano and I- I- Iman Joda uh, over here in Aurora who are working on Assistance for the middle class, folks. How mm. about that? But Juan Marcano specifically is spearheading an, an effort here that I think we need to pay more uh, attention to because it's not just poor folks, like it's middle income people who are suffering. Have you seen other policies or projects in other areas of the world or I don't know that that work that you think we could maybe apply to this system that America's so bound to? Yeah, I mean, you know, the problem with Americans is we don't realize how much more of the American dream exists in other places than here. Mm. You, you see what I'm saying? And so one of the things uh, we, I'm so crazy. Uh, Juan and I were at a meeting with my organization, Shop Talk Live, and he talked about this, how over in Europe, there are models, you know, the Helsinki model, you know, that directly affects homelessness that kind of, puts into practice the fact that one of the ways to stop homelessness is to like give people homes. 
It's one of the things that happens, right? And once you give folks value and access to the job market, 80% of the time, they will reincorporate back into the job market if you just do something that puts them in housing so that they're not fighting for survival around every turn, right? That's what they're trying to construct. And so if more Americans knew that the American dream was alive and partially socialized correctly in other capitalist countries, we wouldn't be so against it when we hear about how it could work here. But the propaganda is anything that helps people with collective funds is somehow leeching off the system. And, And until that happens, until we have a shift in our consciousness, there's not gonna be the kind of political will to make the impact necessary to really affect even middle income people. I'm so curious. Did you, was there anything about, like, I know you mentioned Helsinki. What is their model? Yeah. So it's like this. They did a cost benefit uh, analysis out there at Helsinki. And what it was, was actually it costs more to criminalize them than it does to house them. And so it was just actually more economically sound. And so it's just that the social bonds within a country like that, right, within a city like that, are the thing that legislation is built around. And we can't overlook the importance of social cohesion and its relationship to legislation, right? A country's laws will never rise any higher than its cohesion. I've noticed that, like, in countries where there are not, I, I, I got to say this, as many people of color that are there, the white majority doesn't question social safety nets as much. Social safety nets weren't questioned when they were first created in this country, when only white people could participate in them. Only when after the Civil Rights Act happened, like in black people started participating in the programs they were paying taxes into all along. Uh-huh. did people start questioning these social safety nets? And that racial element has to be looked at. In places like Helsinki, you don't have as much of that racial history. And so it's like, oh, what will we do for people? And they don't even look at it as like black people or brown people or white people. It's like, what will we do for people? Let's just do this for people because that's a smart use, you know, of our collective dollars. And that's what they put together. It looks like, you know, and then, of course, there's only policy. Sometimes they use like Airbnbs, you know what I mean? Things like that to like get folks in because Airbnbs are vacant a lot of the time. So if you were paid by the government to house folks who are unhoused in this Airbnb and there were programs to maintain it and whatnot, well, then that also helps the person. Right. That that the person who owns Airbnb. This is the things we're not thinking about. And if we were thinking about them, then we could solve this problem. And then the ripple effect would show up across the economy and make life affordable for everybody, you know? You're blowing my mind because I'm now, <laughs> it's just dawning on me, this this narrative we have about countries, particularly um, more predominantly white countries in yeah. Europe that have these wonderful social safety net programs. Everybody pays more taxes, they get into it. And it's touted as this like idealistic utopian model. But then when we come back to America and we say, oh, well, we do have some social safety nets, they're underfunded. Well, that's because they're serving these people that aren't really working that hard. Mm-hmm. Or it's serving these people that are milking the system. And that's all code for, we're talking about folks of color that we don't think deserve this. And it's so, I never thought about it's even as simple as how we frame what social safety nets are for. Right. And and it was and here's what's very interesting. So 
we see this rise of fascism across the European Union, which happened to like correlate with the influx of black and brown immigrants from Africa and the Middle East. And now they're questioning the social safety nets in Europe as well. So this is one of the things that like is the consequence of like years of racism and it's hurting white people mm. very, very badly. Yeah, I never thought about that. Yeah, so it's just a painful reality that comes with the shift in our values. And you're thinking about all this while all you're trying to do is buy, is buy a, house a damn house big enough for your kids and your family. Well, Theo, before we go, I would love to give you some space to plug something that you've recently been working on. I, I know you have hosted a show for the History Channel, which is incredible. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So it's called I Was There. It's on History Channel right now. It's They're probably playing a rerun because we've already had our first season. Uh, they just expanded it to the European Union. So places with good safety nets like Sweden, Austria, <laughs> and Germany are watching I Was There right now. So it's about the history that you do know from an angle that you don't know. I'm in Stalingrad. It's December 1942. I don't know how anyone will survive this siege. My name is Theo Wilson. We're taking the biggest turning points in history and dissecting the lost surprises of what happened. Notice in this pocket, the perfect assassin's gun. The biggest aircraft ever, the Hindenburg. You have to see it to believe it. And now you will. And these are things that everybody knows, but we take it from an angle that is not as common. And it really makes folks kind of think about the humanity of the people involved and what we would do if we were in the shoes of the people who were in these incidents. So I was there. It's very impactful. And it clips along at a good pace because it's a half an hour show. And we squeeze a lot into, into a half an hour. So, yeah, <laughs> go ahead and check it out on the History Channel. Theo Wilson, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Miss Bree. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell a friend about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye. I'm going to do that all over again. <laughs> My breathing was weird.